Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. My name's Jesse. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet, it's great to, to meet you and would love to chat with you afterwards. Let's dive in. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. You can follow along in the uh, Uversion Bible app. There's some notes and things there for you to follow along as well. Something you probably don't know about me is that 21 years ago, my wife and I served as youth leaders. Actually, for about 15 years, my wife and I served as youth pastors in a couple of different churches, some small, some church plants, some large, some large mega churches here in South Florida. And it was fun. One of the things that we loved to do as youth pastors is plan summer camp. Anybody ever been to summer camp before? Youth church summer camp? Oh, man, a blast. And my wife would always lead the game. She's super competitive, and that was always a great, uh, a great joy. But one of the things that we always did around the fall or early winter, like January, February, is we would go and scout out a particular location to make sure that this was a, a, a cool place, that they had enough beds, and, you know, that the accommodations were acceptable, and, you know, even taste the food, and, see, you know, kind of plan out, like, the conference space and the game space and all of that different stuff. And so this one time... About 21 years ago, we had an opportunity. We thought, you know what would be cool to do summer camp on the beach? And so even though we were from South Florida and there's beach here available to us all the time, we thought, man, summer camp on the beach would be fun. So we found this Days Inn in Daytona Beach. And after talking to them on the phone, we thought, oh, this, is, this seems like a good place. The, the price seems right. And they invited us to go and stay with them for a free night. Now, here's the thing. My wife and I had been married about five years, so free hotel stay was like, you know, all right. That was like a good deal for us. We were youth pastors. We didn't make a whole lot of money, so free hotel stay. Good thing, right? And we had a young son who was less than a year old. And so we're like, all right, let's just make a little family vacation out of this. We drove up to Daytona Beach to this day's in. We got there kind of in the late afternoon. We checked in. Things were okay. You know, we noticed the hotel was a little run down. You know, it was actually a resort, Days in Daytona Beach Resort. But we were like, this doesn't look too resorty. It looks a little less resorty than you hoped, you know. But we're like, ah, but it's student ministry. It's summer camp. Like, as long as there's beds and a toilet and we can feed them and, you know, plenty of conference room space, it'll be great, right? We were going to go to sleep and then the next day do a tour, meet with the person that, you know, kind of runs stuff there at the hotel and kind of plan it out and figure it out. Now, remember, we had a son who was less than a year old. And if you have a child that's less than a year old, if you've ever had a child that's less than a year old, you know that uh, they're kind of learning the sleep routine and the sleep patterns, right? And so we packed the car full of all the stuff. And, you know, kids that little, they require more stuff than we ever bring, right? Like you're carrying, like you're bringing the crib along and you're bringing the car seat. There's, and there's like different car seats. And then there's the bags and the diapers and all the stuff for this little one-year-old baby boy that we had that we love so much. We still love him. He's 20. We still lives with us. We love him. He's great. But, uh, but, but, you know, we brought everything along. And finally, we got settled into this hotel room at the Days Inn, the resorty Days Inn on Daytona Beach. And uh, Eli finally, like, went to sleep. And we're like, okay, you know, it's not always easy to get the baby to sleep. And then we finally laid in the bed and we're like, oh, we're tired. Okay. And we start to fall asleep. And all of a sudden, the phone rings in the hotel room. And I got to tell you, remember, it's not really a resort. I mean, they say it's a resort, but it was kind of an old, rundown resort. And the phone wasn't one of these new modern plastic phones where it's like, 
it? Like a little ring? It was an old school, like Bell South with the metal bell inside, right? So it's like, clack, 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 clack. I mean, it's so loud, right? So it wakes me. I mean, we were like just, my wife and I were just about to hit REM sleep. Like we're just like fading, fade. Boom, the phone wakes us up. And of course, our son wakes up and he's screaming and crying. So I answer the phone. I mean, I'm a little less than happy. Like, who is this person? I answer the phone and they ask me if so-and-so is there. Is so-and-so there? Like, real angry and upset. And I'm like, no, so-and-so is not here. They've already probably checked out. We're the new guests. And so then they hang up. Like, they don't say anything, right? They hear the baby in the background. You know, I'm upset. And so finally, 30 minutes later, we get Eli calmed down and we get him back in his crib, back to sleep. And you know, when you have a sleeping baby and it's in the same room, it's like you can't make a noise, right? Everything is like tiptoe, tiptoe. Like even the rustle of the blanket on the bed, right? The polyester days in blanket. You know, you're just like real careful because any little noise could wake him up at any moment. We're just falling asleep. Like we are just, like Anitra and I are just, I mean, Eli's finally asleep. We're just about to hit REM and all of a sudden we hear on the door of the hotel room. And so of course we wake up in a panic. Eli wakes up again. He's screaming and crying, bloody murder, right? And they just keep banging on the door. And as I get closer to the door, I hear, open up, it's the police. <clears throat> okay. This took a turn. So I go, you know, what any logical, rational human being would do is I look through the peephole. Every hotel door has a peephole, right? To be able to see who's out there. Guess what? This amazing resorty Daytona Beach hotel, when they remodeled the hotel, they painted over the peephole. So now I'm trying to see who this is. They're banging on the door. My son is crying. My wife is crying. We're panicking. We're upset. And all I hear is, open up. It's the police. But I cannot see if it's the police. And so, you know, if you can't see if it's the police, like all this stuff starts to flood your imagination, right? So my wife's like, we're going to call the front desk. So she calls. the. We don't open the door. Like I'm standing at the door like, sir, uh, I don't know if you're the police. I can't see who it is. Like the peephole is painted over. I can't see. I'm not opening the door. Well, you know, this doesn't make the police officer happy. You know, he's not like, oh, oh, jolly good. That's so understandable, right? Like, no, he's like, he's really upset. My wife calls the front desk. She's like, someone's at our door saying it's the police. And the lady at the front desk, or at least the person on the other line of the phone says, yes, it's the police. Open the door. But of course, we hang up and we go, what if they're in on it? <laughs> what if this is a scam to steal our baby? Because the police officer began to say, we hear your baby. We're looking for a baby. Now, I can't see if it's the police. I have no idea to prove it. They're asking to see our baby. We're only married four or five years. Our baby's less than a year old. This is the second time we've been woken up, and we're in a strange place that we've never been to before. I mean, now I'm starting to look around going, OK, this hotel just ain't run down. It's shady. This is a shady situation. But I remembered that on the other side of our room, there's a, there was a big picture window overlooking the ocean, and we had a balcony with steps that actually led out to the beach. And so I thought, well, if these cops know and the hotel people know 
they would know to go around to the beach side and come up the stairs through, and then we could see them through the clear glass, and we'd be able to see that it's the cops. Now, I wasn't ready to like divulge that information, but I said, sir, if you really are the cops, you'll know there's a better way for you to see us and for us to see you and prove who you are so that then we can let you in. 30 minutes goes by. He's cursing me out through the door. He put a business card through the door. Look, I'm proving it's me. Here's my business card. I mean, come on, people. You ever heard of Photoshop and Office Depot? Like, I saw this business card and I thought, no, 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 this is a scam. This looks like, you know, cheap Office Depot, Kinko's print job. Like, this, what is this? Finally, 30 minutes later, again, Eli's still crying. We're upset. We're wondering what's going on. He's threatening to kick the door down. They're looking for a baby. I'm assuming there was a report of a missing baby. Finally, somebody comes around to the balcony, and we open the curtain, and here's a cop with a gun drawn right there at the door. Of course, we see, okay, legitimate police officer. I mean, I guess we could have questioned whether the uniform was legitimate or authentic, but we didn't go that far. We open the door. At that point, there was like, you know, in the beginning, when the first knock at the door, there may have been like two police officers at the door. At this point, there was 10 police officers that had arrived. We open the door. The other door, the, the, the cop goes and opens the other door. All these police officers come into our bedroom and immediately realize we're not the people they're looking for. And that's not the baby they're looking for. We didn't fit the profile. And the cop's just looking at the sergeant, just like, why would you do this? Why would you? I'm like, sir, I'm from Miami. Like, you know, you ever heard of scams? You ever heard of a hustle? Like, I, like I would never open the door unless I would know for, beyond the shadow of a doubt. So, you know, about five or ten minutes of kind of talking it out or whatever, they finally leave, you know, leaving all of the, you know, like, you know, I didn't know what anxiety was until that day, right? Like, we were just like on pins and needles and finally got Eli to sleep. And the next day, I don't even think we stayed to tour the hotel or meet with the people. We just had a conversation with a lady said, eh, sorry, this is not, you know, I think the Lord spoke to us and told us this is not where we're doing summer camp. And looking back 21 years later, it's a funny story. But in the moment, it was a scary story. It was an incredibly uh, scary story. And what made it so scary for us, what made it so intense for us is that, you know, we were resisting letting what, you know, we hope are police officers that are safe and trustworthy and only mean for our good but we couldn't do that because our vision would not allow us. What we could not see told us what we could do. What we were viewing or not viewing was informing our actions and our behavior. And as we dig into this passage this morning in Colossians chapter 1, my hope is that you would be able to see what it is that the Lord is trying to show you, what the Lord has already done for you, and what he is continually doing for you. The, the title of this message, if you're taking notes this morning, is Let Him In. Let Him In. And I want to share three key ideas with you. The first is this, deep hostility, deliberate death, and discerning reality. And I have a chart that I want to show you. There's two things that happen when you become a Christian. At the point of conversion, there's essentially two things that begin to happen in your life. The first is you begin to grow in awareness of God's holiness, his love, his justice. 
And you begin to grow in your awareness of your sinfulness. But the thing is that at the beginning of your faith, at the beginning of your walk with the Lord, at the beginning of your experience as a Christian, it's limited. Your understanding of God's holiness, His justice, His love for you is limited. Your understanding of your sinfulness is limited. And that is why the cross is smaller there at the beginning of the point of your conversion. But my hope is that as your vision expands of what God has done and is doing, that the cross would expand, that it would loom larger and larger in your life as well. So let's dive in. Deep hostility, verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, Paul is addressing the Colossian Christians here in the past tense, right? Because he's saying, you once were alienated. You once were hostile in mind. You once were doing evil deeds. It's important to see this, to see the past tense language, to to help us understand, to help them understand that the past tense meant something about their current tense, The past tense meant that the current tense is that they are reconciled. That something has happened to them and for them. They have been reconciled. It is a done deal, an accomplished fact. And they desperately needed to be reconciled. We desperately need to be reconciled. And Jesus, by his matchless grace, had taken the initiative. He is taking the initiative with us. The Colossian believers had been alienated from God because they were his enemies. And we were alienated from God because we were his enemies. Ephesians 4, 17 through 18 says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. Now, all throughout Scripture you'll see this juxtaposition between Gentiles and Jews. But this was not really an ethnic issue. This was not a racial issue. This was not the Jews are better than the Gentiles. The Gentiles are terrible. It was really the context, this idea, the conversation was the people of God and the enemies of God. The people of God and the enemies of God. And today, we don't make the same kind of juxtaposition between the Gentiles and the Jews. We talk about the church and all the believers in the church are the people of God. Jews Gentiles, black, white, yellow, red, that song that we learned in Sunday school. The people of God are all the believers, and the enemies of God is anyone who does not believe. But why why did they need reconciliation? Why do we need reconciliation? One way to think about this is that perhaps we were just born this way. And in some ways this is true. We all inherited this disease from our parents called sin. We were all born into sin. And this begs the question, well, whose fault is is it? Whose fault is it that we are enemies of God? Whose fault is it? I mean, God ultimately created the system, but, but at the end of the day, the fault ultimately lies with us. The scripture tells us in verse 21 that we were hostile in mind. Hostile in mind. This is to be against in our mind, in our thinking, to be against doing evil deeds. If you don't trust this one verse, let's look at what some other passages of Scripture say. One way to think about this is, until you have been reconciled, until you have been reconciled by Jesus 
1 Timothy 1 says that we are lawless and disobedient. We're ungodly, unholy, and profane. Those who strike their mothers and fathers, murderers, sexually immoral, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Romans 1 tells us that we're envious, we're murderers, we're causers of strife, we're deceitful, we're malicious, we're gossipers, we're slanderers, we're haters of God, we're insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Should I go on? James 4 says, we are adulterous people who are friends with the world and enemies with God. You want to hear more? Ephesians 2 says, spiritually dead, we're followers of the world, we're followers of Satan, we're sons of disobedience, we're children of wrath. Perhaps that's enough. But Galatians 5 actually says that we're sexually immoral, we're idolaters, we're angry, we're divisive, we're drunkards. Later in the book of Colossians, we're going to hear a sermon on the fact that chapter 3 says we're sexually immoral, impure, evil desires, covetousness, and idolatry. And actually in verse 6 it says, because of this, a wrath of God is coming for us. It says that we're angry, wrathful, malicious, slanderers, and there's obscene talk that comes from our mouth and we lie to each other. This is for all who have yet to be reconciled. And here's this impulse, you know, perhaps you're feeling this impulse, even as someone who I believe is reconciled, I, I believe in what Jesus did for me on the cross. There's this impulse in all of us, I believe, that when we are confronted with our sin, there's two things that take place. I believe that when we are confronted with our sin, there's a human, there's a natural impulse for us to create a self-salvation project or to minimize our sin. Let's look at what it looks like, what it means to minimize our sin. I'm going to give you some categories. One of the ways that we minimize our sin is that we defend. What do I mean by defend? It, some, this sentence might help us understand it a little bit better. It says, I find it difficult to receive feedback about weaknesses or sin. Hey, I'm going to raise my hand on that one. I'm guilty of being defensive. When you come at me with my sin, when you come at me with my guilt, with my fault, I get defensive. We pretend. I strive to keep up appearances, maintain a respectable image. I'm guilty of this too. I think by wearing my shirt tucked out, you won't notice how fat I am. You can laugh. It's okay. It's meant to be a joke. <laughs> that was the most awkward laugh ever. <laughs> I'm just trying to make a point. That's all, folks. <laughs> At all costs. Even my own. Hiding. I tend to conceal as much as I can about my life, especially the bad stuff. Blaming. I am quick to blame others for sin or circumstances. Minimizing. I tend to downplay sin or circumstances in my life as if they're normal or not that bad. Exaggerating. I tend to think and talk more highly of myself than I ought to. These are some categories that show us how it is that we minimize sin. And why do we minimize sin? Because there's an impulse in all of us that when we are confronted with our sin, we minimize sin or we create self-salvation projects. So what are, what are self-salvation projects? What are some ways that we embark on these self-salvation projects? Well, first let me say that we embark on self-salvation projects when we fail to see Christ as our only hope of redemption. It's not, here's the thing, it's not that we don't see Jesus as Savior. We see Him as Savior. But we see Him as, we see him as Savior plus something else equaling our justification. 
It's Jesus plus whatever the righteousness is that we fill in the blank, our own righteousness that equals our sanctification, our justification. And the danger here is that that something else functionally becomes our Savior. That something else ultimately displaces Jesus as our ultimate Redeemer. It becomes our functional source of righteousness. Here are some examples of what the types of righteousness, and this is not an exhaustive list, but these are just some ideas. Job righteousness. Something like, God helps those who help themselves. If I work hard, God will reward me. Or family righteousness. If I just do things right as a parent, I'll be accepted by God, others, and myself. Or theological righteousness. I have good theology. Of course God is pleased with me. Intellectual righteousness. I'm better read, more articulate, more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me superior. Schedule righteousness. I am self-disciplined, rigorous in my time management. God is pleased with my stewardship of time. Flexibility righteousness. In a world that's busy, I'm flexible and relaxed. I always have time for others. God appreciates my laid-back demeanor. Mercy righteousness. I care more about the poor and disadvantaged than other people, and this makes me better in the eyes of God. Legalistic righteousness. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, or date girls who do. God is pleased with my moral convictions. Political righteousness. If you really love God, you'll vote for my candidate. How about tolerance righteousness? I am open-minded and charitable towards those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus in that way. In my world, with the pastors that I run with, we have church model righteousness. My way of doing church is better than your way of doing church. There's a lot of Christians who visit different churches looking for the right way, the better way. And these are just a few examples Just think of anything that gives you a sense of being good enough and better than others. These sources of functional righteousness disconnect us from the power of the gospel. This is why I'm saying all this, because I want you to see. I want you to see the cross looming larger and larger in your life. And furthermore, each of these sources of righteousness is also a way of judging and excluding others. You miss the opportunity to make an impact in other people's lives. In other words, finding righteousness in these things leads us to more sin, not less. Both lead to shrinking of the cross, denying its power. The the cross is powerful, but when we shrink the cross, and I think there's an image here that we'll throw up on the screen, when we shrink the cross with minimizing sin... And with our self-salvation projects, we deny its power in our life. Deliberate death, verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. There's a word here I want us to focus on, and the word is atonement, meaning we're at one with God. Now, if you are, how it works, how it was instituted, and and this would be a great Bible study, this would be a great discourse and discussion. But really, I just want us to look at the simple fact that because of what this verse says, he's now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death so that we can be holy and blameless and above reproach. This is essentially the idea of atonement. 
that what Jesus has done on the cross has made it possible for us to have a relationship with God. Hebrews 2, 14 through 16 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham where Christ's incarnation is declared a necessity in order to, to effect redemption. Here's what this is saying. Jesus literally died on a cross. His literal flesh and bones hung on a cross for you and for me. The death that we're all going to die, by the way, we're all going to die. No one likes to die. No one wants to die. We're all going to die. But here's the reality. Because Jesus died physically, literally died. And because he has the power over death, we see in his resurrection, that means that I can face my death in peace. I can face my death in peace because Jesus, Jesus faced the most violent death in the universe. Jesus faced the most violent death in the universe because he took on a kind of death that you and I deserve to die. See, because he died... We're now presented before God, holy, set apart, blameless, without guilt, and above reproach, with integrity. I mean, we just finished reading in verse 21 that we were hostile in mind. We were enemies of God. And yet, because his physical body, because he literally went to the cross and died for us, we are no longer enemies of God. We are no longer viewed as hostile in mind or, 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 or he doesn't look at or see our evil deeds. He sees us as holy, blameless, and set apart. Now we resist, we resist, the imp there's this impulse that we have, right, of being confronted with our sin. But here's the thing. If we really believed that before God we are holy and blameless and above reproach, how would that change that impulse? How would it change the impulse in our life when you're confronted by your spouse for a sin that they're accusing you of? How would it change your impulse if you were confronted by a coworker or a friend or a parent or a sibling? How would, you, how would you view what's being, what they're accusing you of in light of the reality, in light of the reality that before a holy, just God, that even though you were his enemy, you are now holy, set apart, blameless, without guilt, and above reproach, integrity, that because of the atonement, we are one with God. The wonderful result of this reconciliation is expressed in the words to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. And we have been delivered from this past and e evil life. When you look at all the major world religions, when you look at Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormonism, the Unitarian Church, Universalism, and Christian Science, they all acknowledge Jesus. Did you know this? 
they all acknowledge Jesus. None of them deny Jesus. But here's what they say about Jesus. What a great model. What a great model for us. What a great His life was a great model. And they all say different things about the efficacy of his death on the cross, the validity of his resurrection. They have different things. But, but at the end of the day, what they all share in common is that he was a great model, someone to look to, someone to model your life after. But we declare that he's not just a great model, but he's our great mediator. This is the difference that Christians hold than all the other major world religions is that Jesus is our mediator. That he took us from being enemies of God to people of God. From an enemy to a friend. Now here's the reality. The full efficacy of Christ's reconciliation. In other words, we are not going to fully understand and fully experience the weight, the totality of this truth until we are finally one day presented before the Father without sin, without stain, and no charge against us as declared in Revelation chapter 5. So John sees this vision, right? God the Father has the scroll in his hand, and he says, who is worthy? Who is worthy to, to take the scroll from his hand? And the scroll is a list of all of the, the things that need to happen to right all the wrongs in this world. And it seems like nobody's coming forth, that nobody's worthy, nobody's able to take this scroll. And so John is weeping and weeping. He's, he's weeping because he thinks, well, are we just going to stay this way? Is, the world, is, is there never going to be justice for this world, for all the wrongs in this world? And an angel comes and comforts him. And he says, look, the Lion of Judah, the Lion of Judah. And Jesus comes and he takes the scroll. And here's what Revelations chapter 5 says about Jesus and why he was worthy to take the scroll. Revelations chapter 5, verse 9, it says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For, listen, it does not say he was worthy to take the scrolls because he was the Son of God, because he lived a good life, because he was a great model. Here's what it says. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Because Jesus died on the cross, he is worthy to right all the wrongs. He righted all the wrongs on the cross for you and for me, and he took us from being enemies of God to the people of God. This is what it means that we are now reconciled. To be able to stand before the Father one day, holy and blameless. Do you get this? Do you see this? This is what Paul's trying to tell the Colossians. Paul is reminding them of the most beautiful truth in the entire universe. You were enemies of God because of your doing, because of your evil thinking, because of your bad behavior. Yet in spite of your bad behavior, in spite of your evil thinking, in spite of your hostility, hostility towards God, he came anyways. He died on a cross anyways. He holds you blameless, holy, set apart before God. Verse 23, this idea of discerning reality. Paul gives us this, what seems like a condition. He says, if, if always feels like a condition, 
You know, I, I have this condition with my kids sometimes, like, I'll give you your cell phone back if, right? If you've you got kids, you know what I'm talking about. And so we see this and we think, okay, is this what Paul's saying? It says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now this is challenging for us to look at and to consider, is this a promise with a condition? In other words, is, is my salvation in jeopardy? Is my ability to remain saved, to remain reconciled, dependent on my ability to fulfill the if. And on the surface, it may seem that way, but as you know, maybe you don't, I want to teach you this now, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. And here's what John 10 says in verse 28 and 29. It says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So here's the reality. No sheep of Christ can ever perish. Our eternal security is set, but continuance of our belief is proof of reality. The if is a challenge to us to say, if it's true, if it's real, guess what will happen? You will continue believing. That doesn't mean we will struggle to believe. We will struggle to believe. But sheep always come back to the pen. The people of God always hear the voice of God. Continuance is a proof of reality. And here's what this tells me, that the gospel is not just for the lost, but for the saved. The gospel is not just for those unbelievers who have yet to hear the word of God, to give their lives to Jesus, to pray the prayer, to accept Jesus in the heart, fill in the blank. The gospel is for us too, for the church, for believers, to be reminded, to be exhorted, to be encouraged, to be challenged that you were once an enemy of God. See, when I said I want the gospel, the cross to loom larger and larger in your life, what I'm saying is I want us to stop minimizing sin in our life. I want us to stop creating self-salvation projects in our life. And what is the only thing that can cause us to do that is to rest in the truth of the gospel, to rest in the truth of the cross. I don't need to minimize sin because guess what? Before God, I'm holy and blameless and above reproach. I don't need to create a, a, a righteousness, a self-righteousness a self-salvation project. I don't need to do that. Why? Because I'm, I'm holding on to Christ's righteousness. I'm not holding on to my... Guess what? I'm going to hurt you if we get to know each other well enough. I'm going to hurt your feelings one day. You're going to not like me one moment. I might be the same with you, but here's the reality. Yes, we sin. Yes, we struggle. But our greatest hope in our growth, in our sanctification, is that we need to believe more deeply in our justification. We need to believe more deeply the truth, the simplicity, the beauty of what is the gospel that Jesus took us from being enemies of God to people of God. When I believe that more deeply, more profoundly in my life, it allows me to repent to you quicker. When I do hurt you by accident, when I don't, or even if I meet, I don't know, but we sin different ways. When I see the beauty of the gospel more profoundly in my life, it allows me to run faster in repentance, deeper in faith, and quicker to obedience. 
Look at what um, Ephesians 2 says. You were dead in your sins, children of wrath, but God, he made us alive. One, one of the marks of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, is it has nothing to do with your effort. It has nothing to do with your performance. You cannot attain it. You cannot earn it. You are dead. How do dead people, how do spiritually dead people please God? You cannot. You're spiritually dead. Only those who have been made alive can please God. Revelations 3.20 says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I, I, um, when I was in college, I was in this traveling choir, and I used to hear the uh, evangelist every night. We were at different churches and different places performing. He would always use this verse as like a call to the unbeliever to like let Christ into their life. But this verse is actually being preached in the book of Revelation to the church. So I want to give you just for a second a thought. When Jesus is knocking at the door, let me in. In this verse, it's not saying, let me in, you unbeliever, so that I can convert you from an unbeliever to a believer. He's actually saying to the believers, let me in. Why is he saying that to us, the church, the believers, let me in? Because we have a tendency to kick Christ out. Again, we are in the Father's hand. We are in Jesus' hand. Jesus is in the Father's hand. Our eternal security is set. But we have a tendency, like my wife and I in the hotel room in Daytona Beach, we couldn't see. We couldn't see who was on the other side of the door. So we had no peace. We did not trust. We did not feel safe. And the reason Jesus is on the outside knocking is because you, do, you don't see. You don't see who it is that is coming to your house to dine with you, to eat with you, to have fellowship with you. And we don't trust him. And so when Paul says, if you continue, he's not saying your salvation is conditional. He's saying continuance is proof of the reality. What do you really believe? I love in Mark chapter 9, Jesus goes and heals this little boy, and the father, you know, the boy's like convulsing, and, and the disciples couldn't heal him, and then finally Jesus comes down from the mountain, and he asks all these questions, and it's cool, because why does Jesus ask questions when he knows the answers to them, but he does it to, he knows the answers to your questions, but he's trying to help you see the healing that you need, and so... The father says to Jesus, if you can... If you can heal my boy, please heal him. And Jesus says, if you can, like a little sarcastically, Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for those who believe. And the father says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe that's where a lot of us are as believers. It's not that our eternal security, it's not that our salvation hasn't been accomplished, it's not that we're still enemies of God, but it's that we, we struggle to believe in practical ways, in, in daily ways. We struggle to believe in this Jesus who came and lived a perfect life, not just to be a model, but to die a death so that he could reconcile us back to himself and to the Father 
so that we could stand before the Father and be holy and blameless and above reproach. I love what John 14 says. So there's a point to all this stuff that Jesus is doing, right? Jesus says to his disciples in John 14, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way that I'm going. And Thomas, the doubter, he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. But he starts off by saying this, let not your hearts be troubled. And when you stop and think about the word let, he's not saying, so here's the point, Jesus is going to take us home. Jesus is building, Jesus is building a kingdom. Jesus is building a home for us. We were, we were orphans without a home. We've now been adopted, and Jesus is preparing a house for us. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. This idea of let is not one that we are to work and strive to attain. It's sit back and let this happen to you. It's not your work. It's not your effort. It's his work. It's his effort. Paul says over and over again throughout the New Testament, We see this specifically in Colossians chapter 3. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Letting is not working for. Letting is not attaining for. It's the peace and the trust and the work of Christ knocking at the door, trying to get in and be a part of your life. Let the door be open. Let him in. Let him in. But you can only let them in if you trust, if you have faith. And yet we find ourselves actively resisting, don't we? There are times in our life, there are circumstances in our life where we actively resist the God who said we were his enemies. But even though we were his enemies, he came and he reconciled us. He made a way that even though we were hostile... I mean, do you know what it means? Like, like, have you ever had anyone, like, be so angry at you? They wanted to hurt you. Scripture is violent this way. We were violent against God, and God used violence against Jesus to make a way so that we could be holy and blameless and above reproach. We were dead, but he made us alive. We were children of wrath, but he made peace with us. We were orphans without a home, but he adopted us. And he's preparing a home. The beauty of the gospel is not something you can attain and work for. It's just something you let happen to you. You got to let him in. You got to let him in. I understand how fear causes resistance. We're always faced with the opportunity to fear, different circumstances. But faith opens the door to reconciliation. And I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey today. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never, ever opened the door to Jesus. You've been resistant for a long time. I want to invite you this morning 
to trust, to believe in what Jesus did for you. That's it. I'm not asking you to try and be a good person. I'm not asking you to have perfect attendance here on Sunday. I'm not asking you to give money. I'm not asking you to read your Bible. I'm asking you, would you be willing to trust Jesus, to believe in the fact that when he died on a cross, he took care of the penalty and the consequence of your sin? I mean, you have to recognize your sin. You have to realize that you have sin, and that sin is a problem. It stands between you and God. But this is how much God loves you, that instead of asking you to clean up your life, knowing that it was impossible for us to do that, he sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life and to absorb the consequence of our sin, mainly death, on the cross. And if we put our trust and we believe in him for that, the Bible says we move from being enemies of God to being the people of God, from being lost to being saved, to being reconciled, redeemed. And maybe you're here this morning, you've done that already. You, you say, well, I'm a Christian, I've already done this. But maybe you see that chart where minimizing sin and self-salvation projects, you have denied the power of the cross in different ways in your life. Perhaps it's a reminder to us, like Paul was reminding the Colossians, if we continue to believe, not for the sake of our eternal security, but for the sake of the proof of the reality that we do believe in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And maybe it's a prayer this morning that says, Lord, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. And you can start by saying, help my, help my unbelief so that I can let you back in. Because he stands at the door of your heart and knocks and he says, let me in. I want to have dinner with you. I want to fellowship with you. I miss you. Maybe that's you today, Christian. Jesus misses you. And he wants to have fellowship and intimacy with you. Would you let him in? Would you let him in? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you loved us enough to pursue us and that even while we were still hostile, even while we didn't have the belief necessary, Lord, you still loved us. You still knock at the door of our hearts and you want relationship with us. You want intimacy with us. Lord Jesus, help us. Help us now in our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.